So as we finished up Luke chapter 19, we finished it up with the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem. We see the, the heart of King Jesus. And then he comes into the temple that very first Sunday of Holy Week, what we might call the week of his, of his passion, uh, the week of his death and his resurrection. That, that, the beginning of the week, he comes into the temple and he flips over the tables. They have corrupted the worship of God. And here in chapter 20 of Luke, he is, he's during, during the week, that, that week, so everything from here through Easter is going to be that last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So he's, in, he's teaching in the temple and he's preaching the gospel, Luke tells us. He's preaching the gospel, and in the gospels, the gospel of Jesus that he's preaching is the gospel of the kingdom. That he's proclaiming the rule, the reign of God, and God's intention in a dark and fallen world to create new creation. That when we think about the kingdom of God in the New Testament, it's really, really important. Yes, it's the the rule and the reign of God in the hearts of men and women. Uh, The kingdom of God is in the church, but it's not synonymous with the church. Uh, But the kingdom of God is new creation. That we, having been brought into Jesus, are part of the new creation. We're part of the, new, of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God, as and I'm already ramped up, goodness, too much caffeine. That the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. We talked about this last week. That when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. It's already here in the person of Christ because the king is present. And in fact, you see this alreadyness present all throughout Jesus's ministry. He's tempted by Satan and he exerts uh, dominion. He wins that battle in the wilderness, somewhere like Matthew chapter four. But then he goes and casts out demons and he's healing the sick and he's proclaiming liberty to the captives that that this is all kingdom of God new creation and the the kingdom of God new creation is if you will antithetical to the dark and fallen world all around us it's a, the kingdom of God doesn't have sickness it doesn't have sorrow it doesn't have sin it doesn't have war it doesn't have all these things that plague us so in Jesus's ministry, you see that he is the, the king is exerting his kingly rights and he's carving out a new space with a new community, a new people defined by relationship to and in him. So he's preaching the gospel and the chief priests who are mainly in the scribes and with the elders. So this, this sort of cabal. This group of people that mean ill will towards Jesus approach him to challenge his authority. Now, this is the theme of chapter 20. Jesus's authority is challenged throughout this chapter on various, on, by, by various means through open challenge and through more trickery or insidious or unseen challenge. So if you're, if you're looking at the that's your sermon, God, and you're trying to follow along. Uh, the, the first point is Jesus' authority is challenged. Now, it's something important. And when we think about authority, um, authority is the, the rightfulness, right? Jesus has a right to operate as the king of Israel. He has the right to operate as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has the right to be 
to operate as king over creation. Because one defies or bucks against Jesus's authority, it does not remove Jesus from authority. Just because someone defies or bucks against Jesus's authority, it does not remove Jesus from authority. An illustration of this is saying you could, and I'm, I'm, don't just everybody keep your mouth shut. <laughs> don't start hollering out. Uh, you could say, I, don't, I think this is an illegitimate president. I don't agree with what this president does. I'm going to therefore act as though the president has no authority. You acting as such does not actually remove that president from authority. You, and, and I know that's kind of an incendiary figure. You could say that about the governor. You could say that about the mayor. I don't know why you would. She's so delightful. But um, anyways, you could say that about earthly authorities, that your, your attitude towards that authority does not actually change that authority. So either, now, you could either fall under that authority, live in the space that that authority creates, authority it creates, or you can live your life going over 10, you know, 40 grit sandpaper for difficulty. When we think about the, the authority of Jesus, to live under the authority of Jesus is to live as the world, is, world ought to be. But to refuse to live under the authority of Jesus, to res- refuse the kingship of Jesus, it does not mean Jesus is not king. It just means you are out of step with, with reality. Your, so if your, your unbelief, if you are a person who right now he says Jesus is not king, he's not God, he hasn't done these things, he's just a swell moral teacher, or maybe you think worse of him, your unbelief does not unseat Jesus. You need to know that. So they come to Jesus and they begin to challenge his authority, saying, why do you think you can do these things? Now, what are the things that Jesus is doing immediately? One, he's preaching the gospel. What right do you have to say that you're the rightful king? What right do you have to say God is not happy with Israel? He's not happy with the way the things are in this world. And in fact, he has a different agenda. Or today, what right do you have to tell me who to love? What right do you have to tell me uh, that I'm a man or a woman? What right do you have to tell me what to do with my money or what, what I should think about this world? What right do you have to say there's only one way to get right with God? What right do you have? We live in an anti-authoritarian age. And you might say that sounds pretty good. But a world without authority is a world of chaos. Particularly if you try to remove the authority of God, we devolve, necessarily so, we devolve into a state of moral, spiritual chaos that bleeds into all sorts of other chaos. So they asked Jesus, why do you think you can preach the gospel in the temple? Or why do you think you can come into the temple and flip over all the tables? Why do you think that you can come and restore worship and pronounce judgment on those who are hindering others from worship? Who do you think you are? And Jesus, who is much wiser than they or us, he, he doesn't answer. He, he kind of brings them back with this other question that, that it's impossible for them to answer. They ask him, or he asks them, do you, what do you think about John? This is John the Baptist. What do you think about John's baptism? And they have a choice to make. Either they're going to say, 
we, we actually don't believe anything that he was doing in the wilderness was valid, which is exactly what they believe. And they would run afoul of the crowd. They live in the fear of man. And so they were living, they would run afoul of the crowd or they would, they would have to acknowledge it's from God. And then Jesus says, why, why, would, why would you not believe him? Why would you not repent of your sins and enter into the kingdom of God? And so the, but they challenge his authority here. And I just want to run you through quickly the chapter, just this places where Jesus's authority is challenged. I've already mentioned this one kind of back and forth with the scribes and high priests at the beginning of the chapter. Um, But then his his authority is 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 in parable form in nine through 18 in the parable of of the tenants. And I'll get into that in a minute. But then they challenge his authority about his relationship with Caesar that his authority is beyond and different than the authority of Caesar in verses 19 through 26. Uh, and then he has a, a, Jesus also has authority over death. And so they challenge him, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, uh, they challenge him over the resurrection, right? If a man has a wife and he dies and she becomes the wife of another man or another brother, and this happens seven times over, this is verses 27 through 40. Whose wife will he be or she be? Um, so they're challenging Jesus's authority at the very beginning, blatantly, like, why do you think you can do these things over preaching the gospel? They're challenging Jesus's authority in relation to the state. They're challenging Jesus's authority in relation to the institution of marriage and in regard in, in up against death. So authority generally, authority compared to the state, authority compared to an institution, and authority compared to death. What right do you have over any of these things, Jesus? What right do you have generally? What right do you have over or against the state, Caesar? What right do you have over the institution of marriage or compared to this institution? And what right do you have over death? What right do you have? So there wave after wave of the challenge of authority. And this is significant here and it's significant in our age because if you can, if you can effectively say Jesus doesn't have the authority to do and say what Jesus does, then you remove all of the compelling reasons why you have to obey Jesus. You understand? This is why chapter 20 is so important. It's why it's so important for you when you when you think about the kingship of Jesus. Yes, we can say we can sing it like we just did. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. But if you go out and you don't live like Jesus is Lord, then don't say it. But that's it. That's exactly does our confession of Jesus being Lord, of Jesus being king and of sovereign match up with a life of submission to that authority? Do we live like Jesus is Lord? Because if we hate authority in general, then we're not going to bend the knee to the authority of Jesus. If you think that you are the master of your fate, the captain of your ship, then the authority of Jesus is repugnant to you. You just want to get out of hell free card. You want the sweet, loving Jesus to come alongside you when things are rough. Um, But dear ones, he has much more to say over your life. Okay. But it's significant if you you unplug the authority of Jesus, you unplug all compelling reasons to follow him. But if you do away with the authority of Jesus, you also neuter the cross. You also neuter the cross. You, you rob it of its power. 
So not only is Jesus's authority challenged, and we see he has authority generally, he has authority over Israel is what I'm about to get into, and he has authority over marriage and death and state. His authority is over all of these things because his authority is of a different kind. And this is where we'll end the sermon. But just as a moment, the authority of Jesus, the kingdom of God is of a different kind than the kingdoms and the authorities of this world. And therefore, it can exist in places where you don't think it would exist. It can exist in in free America or it can exist in communist China, for example, because the kingdom of God is of a different kind. But he tells this parable of the wicked tenants. And he talks about a man who planted a vineyard. Now, this was a common image for Israel in the Old Testament. Go read. I was going to read it, but I'm not going to read it. So reference here. uh, Isaiah chapter 5, for example, where Israel is described as the vineyard of God or the vine of God. That God plants this vine and he expects good grapes to come from it. But instead, wild grapes. Now, he wasn't talking about this, but you know exactly what he means. If you go to the grape section at Food Lion versus the wild muscadine or scuppernong that grows in the back back of your yard, you know there's a difference. You can eat those. They don't have giant seeds in them. The skin is not inedible almost. Uh, But the ones in your backyard, right, that's something else. It's a different animal. Now, nothing wrong with a good muscadine, right? I'm not, not, or scuppernong, but you know, you see the difference. They are not table grapes. They're not Concord grapes. Um, So Israel is imaged or symbolized as a vine that God plants, expecting it to grow, to flourish, and to bear good fruit. But what happens is that it begins to bear bad fruit because of unbelief. That the people of God... The people of God planted by God, right? So Israel's called out. They're delivered from Egypt through the Exodus. God provides for them in the wilderness, brings them and plants them in. That's the, that's the verbiage, the language of the Old Testament. He plants them in the promised land so that they would grow and bear fruit for God. And we know, if you've read your Bible, you know that, that they don't do that. They don't do that consistently at all. They bear bad fruit. They worship other gods. They join in in bad treaties with the nations around them. They don't do everything that God tells them to do. They do the things that God tells them not to do. They they just completely blow it. That's why we love them so much. We see so much of ourselves in them. And they just completely blow it. And so the image here is that the man plants a vineyard and he leaves and he puts these tenant farmers... So those who are in charge of the people of Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings, puts them in charge of Israel, and then he sends to them expecting to find the fruit that he wants to find to them, the peace and justice and righteousness that ought to mark God's people. And rather, not only are there bad grapes there, not only is injustice, unrighteousness, etc., idolatry, flourishing amongst the people of God. They take the messengers of God and they kick them out, they beat them, they abuse them, and they kill them. And we see this throughout with the prophets. Jeremiah comes, rising up early, says in the scriptures, 
and they throw him in a cistern. Zechariah is killed at the, right beside the altar. That the, Elijah is fed by ravens and he's fearing for his life. Over and over again, the prophets are abused and shamed because they come with God's word of indictment and of God's word of rep- necessary repentance. And so over and over again, they're treated poorly. They're abused. And as the parable goes, the man sends his only son And what do they do to the only son? They kill him. Who's the only son? Jesus. So Jesus is the, the last, if you will, the last in a long line of messengers that God sends to his rebellious people Israel that they reject. They reject the message of the prophets over and over and over again, and they reject the message of the Son of God who comes. They reject Jesus. And the rejection of Jesus incites judgment just a few years later. I referenced this last year. Last year. I, I might have said it last year. I'd have no idea what I said last year. I, said, I referenced it last week. But by 70 AD, Jerusalem is razed to the ground. And it's because they have rejected. It is a direct fulfillment of this, this parable. And they believed that if they kept expelling these messengers from God, that they would inherit that which only belongs to Jesus. Right? That's what they say. Here's the heir. Let us kill him so that we can have his inheritance, basically. That's not how it works. But this is exactly what we do. This is exactly what we do when we refuse the authority of Jesus and then expect we're going to get Jesus' heaven. We're just like the people of Israel. We don't want your lordship. We don't want you telling me how to live. I just want to go to, go to heaven. I want to be free of sin and whatever. I want to see all my, my dead relatives, my dead dogs, my dead pets. And there's a, a little bit of mocking there. I'm sorry. I want all of these things. I don't actually want you. And we're just like them, dear ones. If we believe that we're going to receive Jesus' inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, those are Jesus' inheritance. Psalm 2. Anyways, I'm not going to open that up yet. But that's Jesus's. And if we're going to have it, we must be in Jesus. But if here in this life today, you want nothing to do with the lordship of Jesus, Because it is the Lord Jesus who extends grace to us. It is the Lord Jesus who died for us. It is the Lord Jesus who conquered sin and Satan and death for us. He is our prophet, priest, and king. But if we will not have him, will he have us there? So they say we're going to kill him so that we might receive the inheritance. And we see, looking at this parable, that's madness. And it's the same way today. Rejecting the authority of Christ means rejecting Christ. Rejecting the kingship of Jesus means you reject all of Jesus. What will the owner do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 15. 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And though those who hear Jesus, these are still the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. They immediately know what he's saying. That God is going to take that which has belonged to Israel. He's going to take it from the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. This is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. We see it in, in, in flesh in the book of Acts. Paul is consistently going to synagogues. He's consistently going to the Jews. For the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, they as a people are rejecting Jesus. And Paul says, well, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Chapter 13 is a great place. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles rejoice. The, reje- the rejection of the Jews of Jesus opens the door for the Gentiles. Which, for the, as far as I know, is all of you. Right? There, there are no... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a Jewish background. But it's, um, praise God. Come to Jesus. But their rejection opens the door for new life for those who come to Christ. But Jesus' authority is decisive. He has authority over those, even those who would reject him. He has authority over even those who would reject him. And so he cites this quotation in verse 17 from um, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So in fact, the building of the church of Jesus Christ builds upon the necessary rejection of the Son of Man. Jesus' authority in this world begins, the inauguration of His kingdom begins with His rejection. That's how topsy-turvy the kingdom of God can be. Here is the King coming, and He's laying claim to Jerusalem. He's laying claim to the temple saying, I'm the last emissary to you from the God who made you, from the God who chose you, from the God who called you. Would you come to me? Would you trust in me? Would you accept me? Would you come under my wings, Jerusalem? Would you follow me, Israel? And in fact, they reject. And in their rejection, there Jesus becomes the chief cornerstone. It's in their rejection that leads him to being ostracized and humiliated and finally crucified upon the tree of Golgotha. It's through those means, dear ones, through the means of rejection and suffering, humiliation and death, that Jesus arrives at the glory of the empty tomb. We just read it from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Even though he was, in, he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. But he, having become the form of a man, the form of a servant, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, suffering, humiliation, shame. What's the next verse? Therefore, because of his suffering, because of his humiliation, Because of his shame, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the introduction. Here is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. It is through blood, sweat, tears, and death. And it continues to be born that way amongst us. If we misunderstand the authority of Jesus on this part, we will continue to be a people duped into deceived into selling our souls, Christians, for the powers to be at this world. What is the big thing? What is the big powerful mechanism that we can leverage for the kingdom of God? We think if we vote a certain way, or if we get the right celebrities on our sides, if Kanye West were convinced and begins to confess the faith and writes a rap album, then everybody's going to believe through those means. That's pragmatism. That's not the gospel. I pray for, I mean, I pray Kanye West. Some of y'all are like, I don't even know who that is. That's fine. I pray he comes to know Jesus. But if we fall in love with the mechanisms of this world, believing that if we can just get those things, if we can just get the right people in the right places to say the right things, then revival will come. Then we'll see the kingdom of God in our midst. And dear ones, Jesus said the kingdom of God is already in your midst. You already have the spirit amongst us. God is already growing his kingdom right under our noses. People are being called forth from death to life through the proclamation of the gospel today. And yet too many Christians are wrapped up in the things of this world believing that if we can just get those things. How many Christians have led and attended rallies? I'm about to get in trouble. Saying, you know what, 2024, if we can just get this person in the office... Get that guy out, this person in, revival, kingdom. Maybe it's not that obvious, but sometimes it is. Now, I, you, you be a Christian. You be a Christian who votes your conscience. You vote, you participate as a citizen of the United States, but you participate understanding that your citizenship is in heaven. You are a citizen of a different kingdom. A kingdom that is unshakable. Will not fall and will surely consummate. Will surely come to be. So Jesus' authority is decisive. He, that this is the turning point. What you do with Jesus. Rejection actually furthers his kingdom. But he is the stone. He is the cornerstone upon which we build. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, verse 18. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's two ways. There's two paths. Either at the the authority of Jesus, you fall, if you will, you fall on your face in repentance and you are shattered in repentance. The gods of this world have no longer no grip on you. The idea that you are your own king or queen passes away. Repentance is a shattering of self so that God can put us back together by grace through faith. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You remember about when you came to faith in Jesus or certain moments in your life where God has 
has grown you up out of something into something. And there was a shattering. One ex- example I've told you before was, um, you know, I went down, graduated PC up the road, went down to New Orleans for, to begin seminary, had it plotted. I mean, had my life gritted out about this is where I was going to go and this is how awesome I was going to be. This is the person I was going to marry. This is how I was going to get my degree, how fast I was going to get my degree. And then I was going to go get this other degree. And then I was going to go do all of this great stuff. And that was a world built with, with under Jesus's name, but it was built from my glory, that gritted out plan that I had. And then God brought a whirling cyclone of a storm that did many things in many different lives. But one of the things it did was to shatter that. I mean, down to the studs. And it was difficult. It was hard. I didn't understand it. There are parts of it I still don't understand. But it was a, it was a repentance that God might rebuild. This is who you are. This is actually what I called you to do. Now it's just going to take a longer and be much more difficult. Repentance involves this shattering. Or if you reject him, you can, have, you can be fully assured that you will be crushed under the judgment of God. Jesus' authority is decisive. Finally, Jesus' authority is of a different kind. And I alluded to this earlier. Jesus' authority is of a different kind. It's not of the same kind as the chief priests and, um, and, and elders and scribes. It's not of the same kind even of Caesar, where they try to trap him about, should we still pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And God, what is God's? Because he takes out a coin and he says, what's, what's on a coin? It's a, it's a rendering of Caesar. Well, you know what you're supposed to be. What we're supposed to be. Who bears the image of God? Is it a coin? You do. I do. That Caesar may have authority over taxes and over government and over, over the sword. But God has authority over all of life. Jesus has authority. Is it of a different kind? It does not rely upon the authorities of this world to sustain it, but all of the authorities of this world rely upon the authority of Christ for them. The authority of the state and the authority of the family, the authority of the individual, the authority of the church, all of these lean upon the authority of God, the kingship of Jesus. But Jesus' authority is not of the same kind as Caesar or the high priest. It's not of the same kind as institutions like marriage. Because his authority is beyond all of them. And in fact, Jesus says, right, in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. If all authority belongs to Jesus, Jesus has, not only does he have creator rights over your life, but he has redeemer rights over your life. He bought you with a price. You're no longer your own. He can, tell you to, he can tell you to do as he pleases. He can send you where he wants to go. The question is whether you will obey him. 
He could come to you right now and say, I need you to go. I need you to go. I need you to go. I need you to go to China. I need you to go to Guyana. I need you to go across the street. Go. And he has every right to do that. He has every right to come into your life and say, that which you are now presently following is not good, right, or beautiful. And you need to leave it alone. Either we're shattered in repentance and we go a different way, or we will be crushed under his judgment. But there's this interesting, and I'm going to wrap up here. When the Sadducees come and they challenge Jesus about marriage and about the resurrection and 27 and following, Jesus makes this interesting picture, distinction. Beginning at verse 34 of chapter 20. And Jesus said to them, this is the Sadducees who are challenging his authority on this basis of, of marriage and resurrection. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. (coughs) Jesus sets up two ages. There's this age and the age to come. This is going to play significantly over the next three weeks as we talk about Chapter 21, uh, the end. He sets up two ages. The age of this one where we marry and are given in marriage. And the next age, the age of the resurrection of the dead. They'll be equal to angels, sons of God, sons of the resurrection. Who's there in that age? Who is it that are equal to the angels and are sons of God and are sons of the resurrection? It's verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to it. So who is worthy for that age? Who is worthy to be resurrected, to be equal with angels, to be considered sons and daughters of God? Who is worthy for those things? Those who are saved. Those who are in Christ. In and of ourselves, we're not. By ourselves, we're not. We are the ones who have defied God's authority. We are the ones who have gone against Him and and chosen our own path too often. Who's worthy to be there? It's not me. So how in the world, how in the world under the authority of Christ can we be welcomed into the new age, the new heavens and the new earth? The new Jerusalem, where there's no more sin or sorrow or sickness, no more wars or cancer or COVID. How is it that we can be there? The Apostle Paul helps us in Colossians chapter 1. First of all, begin in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Listen, 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 listen. Forget everything else, maybe not, hopefully not, but listen right here. Don't forget that, please. But listen to this. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Your qualification is passive. You understand what I'm saying? It is something that God does to you, for you in Christ. He is not saying, if you do all of these things, then you'll be worthy. You can do all the things that this world has for you to do. All the things that you want to do, but you will not be worthy of the kingdom of God. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You hear the word inheritance. He qualifies us to partake in glory. He makes us fit. He brings us out of the mire. He saves us from sin. He rescues us from despair. He unhinges the metal trap of the grip of Satan so that we could be his. It's all of grace. Yes, choose you this day what you will do with Jesus. Will you reject him or will you respond to Christ in repentance and faith? But no, if you respond in repentance and faith, it is only of grace. God makes you fit. And if God makes you fit, your past cannot make you unfit. Your present struggles cannot make you unfit. Your fear of the future cannot make you unfit. Because God makes you fit. God makes you qualified in Christ. So come to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. We're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in line. I can't get over that. We participate in the same stuff as the Apostle Paul and of Peter and James and John. We participate in the same stuff as Polycarp and Martin Luther, Billy Graham. We participate in the same stuff because our status is not built on ourselves. It's only built on Jesus. Because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of, of his, into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. How are we to respond to all of that? Give thanks. How are we to respond to the authority of Christ? Repent and believe. Give thanks. The authority of Christ is not something to be bucked. It's not something to be defied. It's something in which we were, we were called to rejoice. That Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he has made us fit. He's made us fit for heaven. So look to him. Look to him in love. For how we have been loved in Christ. But look to him for how you ought to live your life. Because if he so loves you as to die for you so that you can have new life in him... I promise you, I promise you, the way will be rough and rocky at times, but he knows best. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Live under the authority of Christ joyfully, knowing that under him he will bring you not only now into relationship with him, but he will bring you to glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you have set up Christ as your king in Zion, 
that, Lord Jesus, you have entered into glory and you have sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that you will come to judge the living and the dead. I pray, Lord, now in us that you would find people that rejoice under your authority. That do not seek to challenge it. Do not seek to cast it off as some restraint. But understand that living under the authority of Jesus is living the abundant life. I pray for those in the hearing of my voice today or other days as they might watch this, that they would cease their striving. They would cease trying to have heaven without Christ. That they would cease defying you and disobeying you and bucking your rule and reign. And that rather than something cold and difficult when they look at the kingship of Jesus, that, Lord, you would become altogether beautiful and that you'd show them the futility of running from you. You would bring them to the point, even a shattering moment of repentance and faith, that they might rejoice under the life-giving banner of Christ. Would you grant them new life that they might believe upon Christ? I pray for the weary saint who's confused at the difficulties of their own lives and of the shadow that seems to hang over our world today. Would they find fresh courage as they look to you, Lord Jesus, that your authority is beyond and in and above all of the authorities of this world? And that you have promised to build your church. You have promised that your kingdom will come. And we pray now, God, that your kingdom would come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?